Hey everybody, I'm Jeremy. And I'm Jonathan. And we are the Evangelicals. So we, we promised you last episode that we would talk about the Disney short film, Far From the Tree. Far From the Tree. And we're not going to do... No, I'm just kidding. We are. <laughs> no, we're doing it. We are. We are. So let's let's begin with a let's begin with a narrative synopsis. Is that okay? Absolutely. So can you can you give it kind of uh, Yeah, so it's about raccoons and um cute raccoons. Cute, lovely. And so it's about mainly a, a baby and a mother. The mother is going to get food, tells the baby to stay there and um and you kind of get the essence that it's to protect the baby because there could be dangerous people around. And um or not people, but dangerous animals. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Goes, gets food, brings it back. Baby uh, gets curious, as they all do, walks off, chases something. Mama gets mad, yells at the little one, and disciplines or you know, yells at. Um, and then baby grows up, has a baby of its own, raccoon, same scenario, and, um, and realizes that it's called far from the tree that he is just kind of or this this baby is now living into the same narrative he yells at his child and and the child kind of cowers and then realizes that maybe that isn't the best way then brings the baby along and teaches it to to find food teaches it to be um safe teaches it what to look for um and so it's kind of a different understanding about how do we Maybe help the younger generation. I don't know. Is that is that a good synopsis? It's, it's discipleship versus indoctrination, in my personal opinion. All right. Well, I mean, that was that's jumping into it. I was I was asking if that was a good synopsis. No, I think I think it is. The... I think that yeah, I think that's a I think it's a great synopsis. And um, you pointed out something, uh, really kind of the brilliance of the the title has can be multivalent. Like oh, there's yeah. there's just. That's There's why I feel like it's just you can, brilliant. It's just you can really read the title. Well done. So there is there can be danger far from the tree, right? Right. But also an apple doesn't fall far from the tree. Kind of the idea that as children, although we may rebel against our those who have come before us, our parents, that we end up recognizing similar dynamics are shaping us that may have shaped our parents and we may we 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 have the benefit of learning from our experiences with our own parents like those those things can can shape us so even though i have my parents dna um i have the oper- i have the choice of choosing to be just like them and imitate them or kind of edit on the fly that which they've, you know, passed down to me, and I think the 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 innovation in the in the second generation represented in the short film is that the second generation raccoon decides to go through life with this little one, not yes yes sheltering, right but really living into life with this young one. It's, it's in my opinion, a beautiful picture of parenting. I think that I've been guilty and sorry, mom and dad, of things when I was a teen that I would say, I will never do this when I get to be a parent. For sure. And yet find myself 
realizing that maybe there was wisdom and how they chose to, you know, like, and so, but I think it's also, um, it, I, I'm not the same parent that, that my parents were either. And so I feel like it is kind of a, an ode to parenting, but I think it's just an ode to, to life in general. And, and as the role that I have as a pastor and just thinking about the church and, and we were just talking about the church a lot before we came on. I know that we're gonna get into all that, but I just feel like I see a lot of things through those lenses, especially with the generation that's um, coming up behind. The generation that is is how do we um, effectively bring them along? How do we effectively minister to them? And are there things that people did previous to us, the generation before us? that maybe aren't as effective methods as far as 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 discipling as as trying to help them be a part of what it is we are doing and how do we look at church differently or look at how our methods differently potentially or look at who we are being and rather than looking at the generation that's coming behind us how do we encourage and bring them along rather than just standing at a distance and saying, well, wait, this, you should do this or, or, you know, and, and I don't know that that's kind of the way I looked at it. I totally guess. can we, <clears throat> let's talk about, let's talk about in the movie, the, the kind of the moment of scolding, okay. Of scolding the child. That moment, that moment represents a lot to me, uh, particularly right now, Kate and I have three, three children, young girls, three, five and seven. And for me, there are there are moments in parenting where I want to I want to yell I want to I want to um, express some sort of really strong emotion because I want to communicate to my child how extremely I care about this thing. Either either they've done something so flagrantly wrong that that like damages that is that is damaging someone else or like hurts my own soul. You know, or could potentially hurt them even physically, right? And and so, it's always it's always tough in film when you portray whether you know parents are in this you know in this case even you know animated animals. Sure. <clears throat> when you portray a moment of emotional outburst, because oftentimes there is an, there's an element of purity in the emotional outburst. The emotional outburst is is trying to express in desperation. Um something good something that is something that is helpful i think about so when you talk about the church and we talk about kind of the previous generation i i think in my own life there have been a couple of moments where someone someone of an older generation in ministry has said something very dogmatic or very strongly to me because they're worried about something so i remember there was a minister uh, that said to me early on in my um in early on in my ministry about communion, this minister said to me, don't you ever let anyone who is not, uh, who is not saved, who is not, um, how did he say it? Uh, who is, who has not known the forgiveness of their sins. Do not open the table to them yeah. because, okay, because this is such a, it's a sacred, this is a sacred ritual. And in that minister's opinion, one of the things that was happening to the sacred ritual of communion was that it was being 
um, how should I say, it was being made less significant. And so one of the safeguards, one of the, the kind of the emotional outbursts of this, 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 one of the ways that this individual was expressing to me was, you know, don't, don't, uh, the way that you keep this from happening from it be made, being made less is that you put guardrails around it. Huh. Right. Yeah. Well, <clears throat> similarly to far from the tree, I, a part of my own, uh, communion theology and and the thing that's nice about the church of the nazarene is we we do have kind of an open uh an openness to interpretation of several things including communion there's no there's no rule in our manual that says people who have not been saved and sanctified cannot participate I don't think it's in very communion. wesleyan but that's a different point right 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 <laughs> sure sure well so in my own in my own understanding of of communion judas was the first person to take communion was Judas saved? I mean, you know, I mean, like, like yeah. well, so, but, but for me, I don't completely dismiss the comments of that older minister because I do realize we ought not to take communion willy nilly, but we ought to be teaching our people every time that we come to the table, the significance of it, sure. of Jesus extending to us, of him inviting us to be a part of the table, whether or not we are deserving of it, whether or not we have you know, even, you know, confessed him as Lord, whether or not we've even made up our minds about what we believe about him, right? But explaining that and inviting people into a life of communion, uh, it's not that I want to disregard what this what this prior minister has said, but I, I ought to recognize that this this individual was seeing something in his own lifetime. Yeah. The the desacralizing, I guess, of this institution and he wanted to impress upon me and I, I i'll never forget that conversation because even though in the moment i was i was in my mind thinking to myself I, something doesn't feel right about what you're saying i realized the earnestness with which he was saying to me sure don't let this happen sure i, I think for me i've had moments like that too where f for former pastors will give me something especially in our tribe our denomination around the idea of holiness yes and that if you don't I wasn't using like code words and what I mean by code words is um, in our tribe, we have words that traditionally we use when we talk about that doctrine, sanctification, eradication, like, yeah. and because I wasn't using these words, he believed I wasn't teaching about holiness. You're not theologically sound. I'm not, I'm not doing it right. Yeah. And, and I feel like too, when you hear a lot of, um, about old preaching, a lot sometimes words that are used are fire and brimstone. Like, and they really brought it, you know, and beat the pulpit, and 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 it became, I feel like, a thing of, like those people were really like bringing the heat. Well, and and in many of those situations, there was, they were effective to the extent that they got people to come to the altar or respond in a particular way, and so in those people's imagination, people responding. The, the re that was the result of this particular brand of preaching. Oh, absolutely. Right? Which I think the, the what I was getting to, I think, on some level was I feel like a lot of that pr preaching, I think it was good for a time, but I think it was a lot of it was based on fear. Yeah, yeah. And you think about what was happening in the world. We had world wars happening. We had all this thing. There was a lot of fear about what was taking place and what was happening in society. And so a lot of the preaching... I think lent itself to 
you better be ready. We don't know what's happening. And, and, and people responded sometimes out of fear, out of, um, out of um, a fear of what would happen to me if I died, what would happen to me. And, and, and I think that that transitioned into how people parented. I think it transitioned into how our society was um, potentially set up, was, was based a lot on fear rather than an understanding of what does it mean to respond to God's love. And, and I think that what this short film represents is there is more ways to get to desired outcome than just fear-based um, understanding of life, that there is a way to bring people along. And some people, it's really interesting. I, I think I mentioned last podcast, we're preaching through Revelation, and or I'm preaching through Revelation. And uh, there's a passage that we got to that talks about these plagues happening, that talks about things like um, you know the stars falling from the sky and the earthquakes and all this. Uh, and then I think it's at the end of chapter nine, but it says, but people still didn't repent. Like, yeah. They still didn't repent. And it, it's kind of this allusion back to the plagues with Pharaoh even, that he had all these plagues and his heart was still hardened. And so is there something to, um, and it, it just made me think about all of the natural disasters, like even just things that have happened like 9-11 and churches were filled because people were afraid. But as soon as they weren't afraid anymore, it wasn't a true conversion. It was more of, I'm just scared. And I feel like the church should be a place for that I, I'm just going to run to. Until I'm not scared anymore, and then I'll go back to living life the way that I was w- want to. To where I think what I love about Wesley was his was more of a response to God's love rather than a fear of what was going to happen to me. Because God's love will always be there. Fear will come and go. Fear will cause me to potentially do things that that if I wasn't afraid, I wouldn't do. But God's love drawing me is going to be something. And I think so what this film shows is... I can try to discipline you or yell at you or yell from the sideline to get you to do what I want you to do, but you might respond more to, to who I am if I show you in a way that I'm going to be enter into it with you and not just stand on a stage and yell at you or not stand on the sideline and yell at you about how terrible you are. I think we do this with culture a lot of times. Church is just guilty sometimes of not your church, wherever you're listening, the other churches in your town, but um, you know they're, they're very guilty of this is bad. This is terrible. The halftime show, the Super Bowl was awful. Like we just want to yell and throw stones rather than entering into life with those people and trying to, to show them who God is in the midst of where they are. And I think it's two different ways of getting at it. And we have come out of a season, I think historically of fire and brimstone. Let me tell you how bad you are. Let's talk about how bad culture is. Let's just start throwing grenades in an attempt, I think to, to, to use fear to bring people into the church and to circle the wagons and we're going to get this right. But I think there's a move to saying, no, we need to go actually into the culture and be with the people and be God in the midst of our Jesus in the midst of, of their lives rather than just yelling from the sideline. I don't know. Well, one of the, one of the problems with, or not problems, one of, one of the benefits of just yelling at people is that you feel like, you know what, I told them about the danger. You know, I, the I, cost is very minimal. Yes. I told them about the danger. Now it's on them. And I feel like I've done my job effectively. Discipleship is very, very different than that. 
And that's what I think Far From the Tree demonstrates is this life of of living into dangerous situations with individuals, yeah. with, with a child. Uh, you know, <laughs> Kate, and I are, Kate and I are talking a lot right now about our own parenting and our kids. And one of the things that we're talking about is the negative aspect of school is that, so we had homeschooled, we had homeschooled last year and now the kids are in public school. One of the negative aspects is that we're not walking through life with them every every day. And all of your homeschool, all of you homeschool parents out there are like, yeah, somebody's lifted up the homeschoolers. Yeah, Jonathan, you go, buddy. I knew you were on our side. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> love you, love you, homeschool parents. You guys, so you're doing, that's, you're doing discipleship. That's what you're doing. That's what you're doing. You know, and all of us who are sending our kids to public school, we should just admit it. We're outsourcing a form of discipleship. I realize that may hurt a lot of people's feelings. I, you know, again, we're not funded. So if you want me to not hurt your feelings, <laughs> send us money and I'll advocate for your side. Um, but I'm indicting, I'm indicting myself here. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm sending my kids to public school and I'm realizing that they are learning they are learning how to react in situations and to people in some ways through the world. Now, I will also say, you know, I'll, there's there's pros and cons to this. If you're in a, you know, relatively small, healthy community, you know, one, um, my my oldest child, we're really having some wonderful conversations about standing up for what is right, and she is growing in a sense of confidence and conviction because she is having these opportunities at school with with a relative amount of support sure it's not just she's not it's not just Sodom and Gomorrah over here i mean there are some there are some good people that are that are around her helping her but and so there is there is this healthy healthy nature of of you know sending sending children or sending disciples people in your church into the world and bringing them back but we really have unfortunately we have promoted for the last several decades in the church this idea of the church is a message not a life yeah and the, that what we have to offer people is to tell them how to live but not to actually live with them yeah. and that's actually why a lot of people are leaving the church right now is because they're finding messages out in the world that are much more satisfying on how to live life. And they're looking at the church and they're like, they're thinking to themselves, you know, the church message is actually not transforming my life at all. And I'm not in community with, with these people, you know, um, why, why am I, why am I even doing this? You know, they're asking some of the question where the, the church ought to be, we, we ought to be, the community that is walking, walking with people. And as parents, if we're, if I'm going to send my, if I'm going to, if I am going, if Kate and I are going to continue to send our children to public school, we have, we do not have the option, but to be as absolutely completely involved and invested in that situation, in that school situation as we can possibly be, because to not be invested is to completely relegate or delegate um, the spiritual formation of our children to people who their mindset is not primarily spiritual, not primarily Christian, you know? 
and and so for me for me the innovation of the second generation in far from the tree the second generation raccoon is really this recognition of i'm i'm not going to just to just yell and try to communicate you know and hope that the kid you know at the crisis moments chooses right i'm going to walk with i'm going to walk with so i'm going to i'm going to so i think so we we've sent our kids um since we've been in Pauline public school and i think that i think unfortunately the the homeschoolers get upset with parents who send their kids to public private public school and vice versa for sure and maybe maybe it's kind of like i think we need monks who live in monasteries and we need people i think to just write off the monks and say they're just i i think actually they provide something for the church and for the kingdom that that is just unique and different. So I think the way that you disciple in the midst of, and what I wish more Christian parents, now not everybody has time, but we've always said our kids in public school, guess what? They're also getting my wife and I in the public school to help yep. and to be a part of and to come alongside the teachers and to be a part of. And the way, you know, we, we rail against, I think, public education but where's the church trying to say we're going to make this the best thing that it can be? We 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 have neglected our calling to be in the public sphere and to be supporting the teachers yep. and to be there for the teachers yep. and to be there for the kids and to be reading with kids and to do whatever we can yep. to make the public school system better. And we've we've retreated. You're right. Not knocking homeschooling, but I'm just saying there has to be something that as Christians, if we want the public school system to be different or be better, we can't just stand on the sideline and rail against the public school system. We've got to get involved in the public school system and 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 actually be boots on the ground in the midst of. I don't mean the, everybody has to become public teachers, but then I think another thing is we have a lot of teachers in our church, and and we I do my best to say that is a calling to be that to be the hands and feet of Jesus in that public school system for those kids who are coming from families that are just broken and you get six hours a day to love on that kid and to teach that kid and try to give that kid a different trajectory in their life that, um, that is positive. And so I think we have, we can't be upset at the public school system if we're not willing to be invested in the public school totally. system, we can't be upset at the community. Um, I, I saw a tweet that says we can't blame Babylon for acting like Babylon. Yeah. <laughs> if we're not, you know, like if we're not gonna to be invested and it seems like, unfortunately our, our bit is to say, let's just retreat and do our thing rather than saying, how do we be invested? How do we be involved? How do we, how do I see my discipleship? Not just of my kids, but coming alongside the teachers that of the classrooms that my students are in and saying that my children are in. And, and, and like I said, we tried to do our best. I'm not saying we did it perfect, but saying, if you need anything, like, please, I want to be the first person you call. Like, if you need supplies, if you need, yeah. like, I'm here for you. I want yeah. to build this relation. I want you to know that, that I'm invested in you just as much because my kid's success is your if you succeed it's the whole jeremiah passage if babylon succeeds then you're going to see you know like invest in build houses have kids do all this stuff in essence i think what he was saying is make your town better because yeah. its success will be your success on some level i think i think another thing that is important 
as we are thinking about our lives missionally, and this is something Kate and I have had to wrestle with, my mission pastorally, I cannot outsource my mission to my child. So if my child is in a situation where, although I want them to be missionally invested, where they're getting um, beat up beyond repair, or they're in a situation where they're kind of lone rangering it and they don't have support and I'm not able to be there alongside, there can there can be damage done both to the parental relationship and and to the to the child. And I and I sometimes you, you said you said if you have time when you were saying, you know, about being invested in the public school. I think that I think that there's a problem. That there is a problem right there is that we we caveat too much. Here's my here's my here's my pitch, parents, and this is gonna hurt. It's gonna hurt, and you're you can unsubscribe to the podcast. But at least I got to say this to you: if you don't have time to be invested in the things that are primarily discipling your kids or shaping your kids, don't don't complain when your child becomes someone that you don't want them to become. You have no business, in my opinion complaining about how your child turns out if you don't have time because you have such a you know you have such important work to do you know at the office or you know at the factory you know or out on the job site um because you would be and i may have said this before i feel like you would be better to be on welfare and to disciple kids that are that are grounded in christ that have compassion that see the world i i mean honestly (laughs) Uh, I don't have sociological data right now, but a lot of the impoverished kids that I meet that grow up that grow up with close-knit families in poverty have higher character than a lot of the families that I know that grow up with incredible amounts of wealth. And um, part of part of that is uh, is kind of connected to this idea of discipleship. I think that in the upper echelons of our society, we have, we think to ourselves, you know, my time is really important. I don't have time to, I, I'm going to, we, on the upper echelons of society, we outsource more, but in the, in the, in the lower, in the lower classes, socioeconomically, where people don't have either the resources relationally or financially to outsource, they find themselves being more invested on the ground. And there is a, there's definitely a correlation between significant relationships and <clears throat> there's there's reasons that there's reasons that people who grow up in small towns with not much when they move to the city they look back nostalgically on the close-knit nature of relationships and accountability it's because when you don't have <clears throat> when you when you don't have the ability to just fly you know to florida for the weekend and <clears throat> and and to and again to 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 outsource or be connected in in kind of these random disconnected spheres of people you find yourself being more more focused on the immediate relationships to you that may have seemed kind of highfalutin or heady i i guess what i what i want to say is is this rich people often have a hard time with discipleship because we've taught people in the church that doing good is equal to, is equal to give money 
We we love it's the Compassion International. Hey, don't worry about the don't worry. You don't have to. You're rich. You don't have time to worry about the kid down the street. Here's the picture. Here's a picture of a kid from Sudan. Give money to this kid, and that's your good. That's your good thing. It's 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 being Christian positive without discipleship. And we we need this. We need to get back to actually walking with people, and we need to get back to actually walking with our own kids. So I feel like a couple things. I feel like a lot of the 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 previous generation was about making your life better after you die than it was about journeying with people that are around you. So come say this prayer so that you get out of hell. Like it was kind of this this afterlife theology. Like that's what's important. That's why it was important to to get people to come to the altar to do all of those things. But I think a generation now is asking is like that's cool, but how is this going to change me tomorrow? Or how is this going to change the world tomorrow? How is this going to to make the world a better place? Like if God really does care and God really is concerned, what is it about what you're telling me that's going to affect me tomorrow? And, and not just affect me and helping somebody else, but how am I going to see who you are in my life and, and, and walking through the puddles and walking through the messy times and walking through all of it, that I think that, that that's what they're craving. And I think you said something like they're going to other places to find that. And I think that that's why, that's why I feel like we can't get real upset when, when they do go find that if we aren't providing, I'm here for you, we're journeying through this together, the church is that community of faith that everything isn't perfect, but we can get through any storm together, any any hard time together. And I and I think that that once again, I feel like our there's a lot of in our society where they I think we see that. I I, I think um, when you when you hear um, athletes who come from like inner city or or rough um, upbringings. It's interesting that the person, there's always somebody, a grandmother, a mother, who invested in them and, and made sure they, and a lot of times it's a community that, that they invested in me, whether it was aunts and uncles or, um, and, and if you were to go to a lot of inner city communities, I want to say all, they all know each other. <laughs> like they, and and they literally have the mantra that, that it, it takes a community and 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 a lot of those children have a lot of grandmas because it's anybody that's in the block or you know what I'm saying, or in yeah. the apartment complex and, and 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 you may look at that and say, but they don't live up to this expectation or they're they have rough or there's a lot of killings and murder in those places. But I think that there is something that that what I love is when Sometimes athletes, after they made it, they'll go back to their neighborhood and walk around and, and they can name this person. Like they still remember moments or or instances from their childhood that impacted them. And most often it's when somebody invested in them or yeah. or journeyed with them through a difficult time, a coach or, a, you know, a principal, a teacher. Um, and so I just think it's it's fascinating and I think what we see once again in this is I think a lot of times people in this film is we want to talk about how terrible the younger generation is and we just want to rip on millennials and we want to and are they 
are they perfect? No, but guess what? My generation wasn't either. And the generation before me wasn't either. And so I'm not saying there aren't things that we need to, to help them with, but I, I think if we are believing that methods that worked previously, like, let's just yell from the sideline, like that's not going to help this. Like they're, they're not going to respond to that. And so if we just keep doing it, they're just going to keep rejecting, you know, like, and we're just going to keep pointing fingers, not we, but people are going to keep pointing fingers and saying, well, they're not responding. They're, they're lazy. They're this, they're whatever. When maybe we need to have a different approach to say, okay, that maybe that served a purpose at a time and a place. It was helpful, but how do we get in? They, this, this generation wants us to get in the weeds with them. They want to know that we actually care about their life and not just about, propping up the the thing that I'm a part of or propping up um, the agenda that I'm a part of, but I actually care about them as people. And I think what this showed is things work, things have seasons, but this generation I think can literally teach us about compassion and love and, 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 and understanding that, that money isn't everything. I don't, I don't know that. I think some of them are concerned. Like, I think there's some things that, that says that's a big deal for it, but maybe that's Gen Z or why, or, I mean, there's so many now, but I think that they do have a heart to want to be with people and aren't as concerned about the money aspect and, and earning a lot as they are about journey with people and being with people and, and loving people and, and, and having that heart to want to make a difference in the world. So as a denomination, our mission is not to convert people. It's to disciple people. And we forget this about Jesus, that Jesus Jesus never said, uh, ask me into your heart, pray a prayer of confession, Jesus, Jesus's call is always one of discipleship. Pick up your cross and follow me. Come follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. Follow me. Walk with me. This is, this is the way of Jesus. And we have, we have turned Christianity into a one and done conversion religion. Um, and even one of, here's a, here's a big problem in the church we have we have been teaching ministers that their primary vocation is to speak not to listen so i i've taken many classes in my time in seminary and graduate school teaching me how to teach i've never the closest thing the closest thing that i got was a very to to a class on listening was a class on pastoral care and counseling and that was honestly uh, it it always comes to the top of my mind as as one of the most useful practically you know courses that I took for my everyday ministry because the skills of listening are are the ones that become most valuable when it comes to actually discipling people. I had a I was in this seminar once where uh, <laughs> there was this there was this proposal that. If Starbucks can make a barista in eight hours, we ought to be able to make make disciples. Like we ought to be able to have some sort of refined system where we can also make disciples. Like if they can make somebody that can make a really great, uh, can pull great espresso, you know, within eight hours, we should be able to in the church, you know, within eight hours produce disciple or disciples who are making disciples. And I, I just, I vehemently opposed 
this idea. I said, wait a second. Wait, well, hold on, hold on, hold on. I don't know. I don't know what you're trying to sell right now, but you don't. You fundamentally don't understand Christianity. the The Son of God comes to Earth, walks with people for three years, and they're still terrible disciples yeah. after he gets done with them. Like, and he, one betrays him. Yeah, I mean, man, I don't. I don't know where. I don't know where we where we got in consumerism ideology where we think that because some company has a good training program that they can coffee yeah it's like to program (laughs) to program people like robots that we in the church ought to be able to have a system that programs people like robots also to create some sort of being that we hope they become because jesus says it best to nicodemus when nicodemus comes to him and asks him for the secret handshake Jesus says, oh, this is going to be a tough one to answer, bro, because the wind, the spirit is like the wind. Yeah. It's a constant. This is a moving target. Have you met these people? I mean, this, the, the needs are, the needs are vast. The, the, the issues are complex, you know, and the son of man did not. So we love John three sixteen, right? God sent some of the world. Um, we, uh, God so loved the world that he gave his only. Wow, you struggled with. Well, the... I did because I because I honestly, Jeremy, I quote three seventeen more than three sixteen, so yeah, I yeah. do sometimes forget three sixteen. Three sixteen is God so loved the world he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Three seventeen, in my opinion, is a, is just is more helpful pastorally. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through Him. Jesus did not come pointing fingers giving prescriptions jesus came to save them and how did he come to save them by discipling and by giving up himself for them yeah right it's a way of discipleship and it's a way of the cross and the fact that we have turned christianity into the moment of yelling the moment of um we call it fire insurance we actually call it fire insurance. Like how embarrassing is that? We call salvation fire insurance. We yell at people and tell them they need to get converted so they so they don't go to hell when they die, but they have no way how to live in this life. And so they just end up living in hell. Yeah. And I'm 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 worried that at the judgment after they live in hell in this life, they're gonna find out it's just gonna be more hell in the afterlife, you know? Well, it's funny because I think the pastor that gave you the the spiel on communion. And was trying, and the fact that you were making communion less holy, we've turned salvation into something that is has nothing to do with the kingdom and and what what that's all about. I think it's uh, uh so then people's first reaction, you know, not that we get a lot of reaction, would be, but but Jeremy and Jonathan, Jesus flipped over tables in the temple. He got upset and yelled at people too. To which I would say. But the thing that he got upset about and the people he got upset was were the people that wanted to stand on the sidelines and yell at the people who were unholy and unclean and wanted to rather than journey or get into the the weeds or the life with the people who needed it the most. They wanted to stand on the sideline and tell everybody else how impure they were and how holy they were. Um, Yeah. and, And that's the people. I feel like anytime Jesus gets upset. It's the people at the people who wanted to stand on the sidelines and throw grenades. The whole reason he flipped over tables was 
the sinners and the people weren't welcome into the temple or they were only going to come to a certain point. Um, the priests were more, con- they were more concerned about protocol than prayer. Yeah. I mean, this is, it's like, and Jesus is like, this is not about protocol. Right. It's not about protocol at all. And they could go into the inner place and not be with the people. Yeah. The very people that Jesus were saying, no, these are the people that, that I actually, that who you should be journeying with and helping with. And, um, and so I think that we, we have to, and I, and I loved something you said in our conversation before. Um, Oh, that's nice, Jeremy. Tell me, what did I say? (laughs) You said, um, (laughs) that we're kind of in a, a a position in our culture that, that we as the church can live more into the calling that we've had from the beginning through things like um, conversations about Medicare and providing things for people, like being, not saying anything politically, so don't get upset and don't hear what I'm not saying, but previously the church was the place to to take care of the people. The church was the place to provide those things. The church was the place to that took care of the unwanted babies that took care of all of the, the, the people who needed help. And we're in a position, I think now to, to have a, a, a chance to reclaim what it means to be the church, to reclaim and to reinsert ourselves into the conversation of, of really journeying alongside and, and providing the things that people potentially need. Now I get it. It takes money. I get it. Resources are limited, but what if we changed how we spent our money and changed what we did with our budgets and changed how we functioned as a church? Could we do more in the, along those lines of investing in and journeying with and paying, um, helping people pay the things that they need to pay, get the things they need to get so that the ch- people, when they were in times of crisis, did come to the church because they knew it was a place that wasn't going to condemn, wasn't going to say, well, you should get a job. It wasn't going to be this place where we were always making excuses for why they don't have the things they have and said, we're going to come alongside you. We're going to journey with you. We're going to figure this out together, and we're going to actually be the people that God is calling us to be. And I, and I feel like we're at that point, to bring it back to the video, to, to not yell at the people that that unfortunately traditionally churches have yelled at, but to say, we don't know why you're there. We don't we don't but we want to figure out how do we come alongside you and journey with you and figure out how do we be Jesus in the midst of um, and it's it's gonna cost not just money, but it's gonna cost heartache. It's gonna get messy. People are going to disappoint you. People are going to do things that you think I've journeyed with you all this time, like Jesus with Judas, I've, and you're still going to go out and and do yeah that that that's potentially going to happen. But Jesus thought it was worth it. Yep, to have Judas a part of the table and to be a part of that, he thought it was worth it to 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 allow him to be a part of that community. And um, if he's the example, the one that we're following, maybe we should think that it's kind of worth it too, even if it does get a little messy, a little crazy. Healthcare is on fire. And you know, at the beginning of the 20th century, healthcare was also on fire. That's why a majority of your hospitals are, they have church names on them. You know, Dublin Methodist, you know, Lima Mercy, you know, uh, St. Rita's, right? 
these churches at the beginning of the 20th century realized, hey, we need to help the world. And part of the reason that the church still actually exists in the West is because back at the turn of the 20th century, there were actually, um, uh, and late 19th century, there were actually a lot of really amazing organizations, um, the uh, Salvation Army, yeah, right? These organizations that a lot of people don't know that when you give money to the Salvation Army, you are actually giving money to a denomination, just like the Methodists or the Nazarenes. They're a denomination, right? But they've done such a good job of branding themselves in the world as a compassionate organization, right? On, I think it's always so ironic. Um, I say always. This one year, it struck me maybe five years ago. Um, I was at uh, a family gathering on Thanksgiving, and the Dallas Cowboys were playing. And uh, there was, uh, uh, you know, the Dallas Cowboy cheerleaders. There was a them. I look at the TV, and you have dancing Dallas Cowboy cheerleaders and the emblem of the Salvation Army, the red bucket. And I'm like, and I'm like, and I'm like, well, and it was it was everywhere that day. The, this Cowboy Stadium was covered with they had they had gotten in cahoots with the Salvation Army, and I was like, you know, that's. <laughs> For for the people who are denominationalists with the Salvation Army, they're probably thinking to themselves, "This isn't really our greatest moment," <laughs> you know. But at the same time, they're they are they're a they're an amazing denomination because they are oriented toward the world, and the world has embraced them because they have demonstrated time and time again we help people, yeah. right? And so, not even knowing it. Secular principalities call the Salvation Army, not knowing they're calling a church denomination, and they say, hey, we've got this problem. Can you help us? And the Salvation Army is like, yeah, you guys have been donating money to us for years. We're going to help you, right? I mean, it's it's amazing. And I think that similarly to the to the kind of dumpster fire that was happening leading up to World War One and World War II at the end of the 19th and early 20th centuries, I think we're in a similar place today. And I think that the church has a great opportunity to step up to the plate. I'm not pessimistic, Jeremy. I, I, I don't think that, uh, I don't think that I am a part of a dying institution in the church. I think that I'm a part of a church that is on the edge of a great reform. I hope it's a great revival. I'm being serious. I'm not, I'm not joking in any way, but it's, we're, we're going to get there, not by yelling at society, but by listening and by coming alongside. Yeah. Right. And I, I think that that is really the great gift of this suggestion, Jeremy. Thank you for encouraging us all to watch (laughs) far from the tree. Really? This is nice. It's lovely. It's lovely. The Evangelicals podcast is recorded at Lima Community Church of the Nazarene in Lima, Ohio. 